At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, friends, today we're going to be uh, beginning a new sermon series called Mission Brief. If you've been with us the first three weeks of 2023, we have been walking through 2 Corinthians and we saw how God is preparing us for the mission that he has called us to. He prepared us by, by comforting us so that we can comfort others. He prepares us for this mission by forgiving us so that we can forgive others. We've seen that among other things in the first three weeks. But today we're going to be in our next series in 2 Corinthians as we see not how God is preparing us for the mission, but what is the mission that he is preparing us for? What is this mission that we have been called to? We need to be briefed on this mission. And we'll see that over the next several Sundays, including today as we are in part one of this series, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. But before we look at those verses together, I I want to just set the table for our conversation by asking you this question. How many of you have ever had a version of Christianity presented to you, or you know someone who ascribes to a version of Christianity that promises that if we just do the Christian life correctly, we will be healthy, we will be wealthy, and we will be happy? Now, Many of us have had a version of Christianity shared with us that promises such things. And honestly, there's some anecdotal evidence that would support some of these ideas some of the time, right? When we think about being healthy, we we all know someone, and maybe we have experienced it, where we have been in the throes of disease or, or difficulty, and we have prayed for God to take us through that time, and we now have a health that has improved. And also... Uh, There are those that that have gotten serious about walking with God in the area of their finances, maybe even began to, to give for the first time, and then they saw God bless their business in a bountiful way. Or we know people who were lost and listless, who trusted Christ, and then their life suddenly had purpose and meaning, and there was a sense of happiness and contentment that came about their lives. See, these objectives work some of the time for some of the people. But do they endure in this life? Do they endure? Well, when it comes to healthy, we also all know people who loved Jesus and died before we thought their time was due. They died young. We know people who experienced cancer despite a, a, a robust walk with God and that endures. We know people who have chronic pain who love Jesus We also know people who are loving Jesus, walking with him in a tremendous way in their lives, but are having trouble making ends meet. They live at or below the poverty line. That's true in our city. It's true in our country. It's also true certainly around the world. And there are certainly a perspective that that brings us joy and contentment in our life, but also following Christ could lead to difficulty and pain in our relationship with our family or our friends. It can lead to persecution. It can lead to a number of things that don't fit on our happy list. 
And so when we think of the Christian life, if we have reduced the Christian life to say that it will make us healthy, wealthy, and happy, and then it doesn't, we begin to think either I am doing it wrong or it's all a lie. But friends, this vision of the Christian life is not the vision that the Apostle Paul talked about. I mean, think about it. The Apostle Paul didn't have perfect health. He had lingering health issues. He begged God to take certain health issues away. They did not go away. He was someone that certainly was not wealthy by the world's standards. And he was someone who was beaten and kicked out of many of the towns that he visited. And so this vision or version of Christianity doesn't even hold up on the pages of Scripture. So what is the good Christian life? What is the mission that God has called us to? What is the purpose and the meaning of our lives? Well, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up, and I'll make a few observations from them. The Apostle Paul writes to his friends in Corinth, and he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them, and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, friends, in these few verses, I want us to see a few things that will help us understand and be briefed on the mission that God has called us to. So, what are those things? Well, the first thing we need to see is that there are round-the-clock challenges. There are round-the-clock challenges. There are round-the-clock challenges that you experience. There are round-the-clock challenges that I experience. And there are round-the-clock challenges that the Apostle Paul experienced. Now, in order to understand that, we need to remind ourselves of the geography of this section of Scripture that we're looking at. This is where Paul was operating at the time he wrote this letter. And so just to point out a, a few of the important places, there was Troas where, where, where Paul was when he talked about in this letter. He was in Troas, a door had opened. He was preaching the gospel there. It was a port city in northern Asia Minor. Um, also, Paul had been in Ephesus uh, earlier in his ministry. He had been in Asia Minor, and he had experienced some very difficult things there. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, the area of Macedonia with its principal city of Philippi was a place where Paul had been before and a place where he would go back to, even in the context of Second Corinthians. We'll talk about that. And then there was the city of Corinth, which was in the southern portion of what we would know of as Greece, what they called Achaia in in that day. Now, these places you might think of like placed upon a clock. You've got 11 o'clock, you've got 2 o'clock, you've got 4 o'clock, and you've got 8 o'clock. And so if we were to rock around that clock, what did Paul experience in those communities? 
Well, in, in Ephesus, he experienced persecution. Remember, we saw this a few weeks ago. He said, in Ephesus, in Asia, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Acts 19 talks about a riot that broke out in that city when Paul was there. And so there was persecution, direct persecution, because of his testimony of Jesus that Paul experienced in that town. When it comes to Troas, Paul says in the verses we just read that his spirit was not at rest. He, he had no peace of mind in that city. Now, why did Paul not have a peace of mind when he was in Troas? Well, I think it's because he was concerned about what was happening in Corinth. He was concerned that they would repent. He was wondering how they would receive his stern letter that he had sent that we've been talking about these last few weeks. And he had sent his friend Titus to go and to deliver that letter, and he was eagerly awaiting Titus's return. He probably had set Troas as the rendezvous point. Hey, Titus, as soon as you find out how the Corinthians are doing, come back and tell me in Troas. Paul was ministering in that city. A door was open for ministry in that city. And yet his spirit was troubled. He had no peace of mind because he was wondering what was happening in Corinth. And even more so, maybe he was wondering what happened to Titus. And this is before the days of, of phone calls and text messages and emails and social media and GPS tracking. For all he knew, Titus had been on a boat that had sunk. And as the months wore on, Paul was concerned. And so Paul leaves from Troas and he, he heads over to Macedonia. This was probably the winter rendezvous point. It's as if they would have had a conversation and said, Hey, Titus, if you can't make it by October, maybe meet me in Philippi instead up in Macedonia because it's easier to get there. You don't have to cross the ocean to get there. And so Paul retreats to Philippi. But we find out later in the book of 2 Corinthians that when Paul gets to Philippi, he says he, was, he had fighting without and he had fears within. He had challenges around the clock. And we remember that in Corinth, he had been rejected. He had called them to repent and they had turned away. Paul said, we saw a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he wrote them out of much affliction and anguish of heart. Two o'clock, four, uh, uh, 11 o'clock, two o'clock, four o'clock, eight o'clock. Round the clock, Paul was experiencing challenges. Now, should this have come as a surprise to Paul or to us? Well, the answer, friends, is no. Because who was Paul following? Who was his Lord? Jesus. And what was Jesus' experience? Though the map was different, what did he experience in public? Well, he experienced persecution in public. He was nailed to a cross on Calvary's hill. What did he experience in his home life? It wasn't perfect. It seems as though his adopted father, Joseph, was dead by the time Jesus began his public ministry. He experienced that loss and difficulty at some point before his 30th birthday. Not only that, but his brother's saw him ministering one day and said, what are you doing? You're embarrassing the family. Can you imagine saying such things to Jesus? His life was challenged at home at times during his life growing up. He had problems at work. His, his crew, the disciples, made some mistakes. They failed to understand things they should have understood, and on and on. And when we think about Jesus in the neighborhood, he was rejected in the neighborhood, even with one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, turning him over to the authorities 
for his death. If this is what Jesus experienced around his clock, why would Paul have expected anything different? And friends, why should we experience anything different? We who live in this same world that rejected Christ might experience persecution, lack of peace, problems, and rejection as well. No doubt if you were to survey your life in this this season, uh, you at least find evidence of some of these things happening in your life. And if you're like, actually, pastor, everything is awesome right now. Well, let me just uh, hate to, to, to spoil this for you, but there will be a time if you live long enough and you follow Jesus enough, what will happen is your watch face will have persecution, pain, problems, and difficulties on it. You can, can set your clock to that. And so we have these challenges, these round-the-clock challenges that we experience. But if we have round-the-clock challenges, what do we need? If we have round-the-clock challenges, what do we need? Well, we need a a round-the-clock perspective. Round-the-clock challenges need a round-the-clock perspective. We need a perspective that is durable, a perspective that can last even when things are tough. You know, sadly, friends, I I have known friends who have walked away from the faith because they, they embraced a, a version of the faith that said, if I'm following Jesus accurately, then I will be healthy, I will be wealthy, and I will be happy. And there was some disruption in one of those areas, and it caused them to walk away from the faith. How does that happen? What happens because they don't have a durable enough perspective of the Christian life to endure the difficulties that are sure to come. And so what is the perspective that we need in the midst of these round-the-clock challenges? Well, first of all, we know that there is a perspective that works round the clock. Well, what Paul says in 2.14, thanks be to God who in Christ always round the clock. There is a perspective that is durable. There is a perspective that will last regardless of our experiences. There's a perspective, a correct perspective that can endure always. And not only that, it's not just round the clock, but it's also around the globe. It works everywhere, whether it is working at the University of Oklahoma or in your, your workplace or in your home or on the mission field or in the south of Sudan, wherever you are, friends, there is a perspective in Christ that endures and it is a perspective that is in Christ. It is, it is centered on Jesus. And because of that, it's available to all who are in Christ. So if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, or you will do so at some point even later today, there is a perspective that will endure and will last in the midst of the challenges that you will experience. So what is this perspective that is available in Christ to everyone, everywhere, and always. Well, it is a perspective of, first of all, thankfulness. It's a perspective that thanks God for something that he has done, that leans into God for his provision. Well, what has God done? Well, he's leading us. In Christ, he is always leading us. The Christian life is a follow-the-leader kind of life. Now, follow-the-leader only works if the leader is present, and Jesus is present. He has defined the way, and he invites us 
to follow him. So this perspective allows us to give thanks to God because God has not left us alone, but he has saved us in Christ and he has set an example in Christ and invited us to follow Christ. But as we follow Christ, what can we expect? Well, we can expect a triumphal procession, a triumphal procession. Now, when, when, I, when I say that, uh, some of you are like, wait a second, triumphal procession sounds an awful lot like healthy, wealthy, and happy. I, whatever I want to load into the word triumph, it, it sure sounds like all of those things are just going to work out for me. So is that the perspective that I can hang on to? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to, to dive in and look at what the triumph was all about. And this was not just a, a random word, but it actually was a technical word that talked about something that happened in, in the Roman Empire. A triumph was a special celebration that happened in the Roman Empire. And it was no participation trophy. It wasn't something that if you worked in the Roman army, that one day you would get to have your own triumph. It's like, hey, it's Tuesday, so on Tuesday, it's a meals day. So we're just going to celebrate him. It's his triumph. Everybody comes like, you know, your birthday, you get a cookie cake, whatever it is. That's not what the triumph was all about. In order for there to be a triumph, what would have to happen is the general would have to win a mighty victory. It would have to be a victory on foreign soil. It couldn't be something done in a civil war. It had to take new territory. And it had to, to defeat at least 5,000 enemy troops. And if that criteria was met, when that general would come home, a big celebration, a ticker tape parade, if you will, would ensue. Now, in this parade, there would be a number of different people. First of all, there would be the conquering general, riding along, waving to his adoring crowd. But also, there would be the spoils of victory. In certain etchings in Rome today, you can see uh, pictures of what a triumph looks like. And the triumph would include whatever loot they took from the country that they had sacked. They would bring that loot back and it would come in the triumphal procession. It was a part of the celebration of the, the defeat of the conquered people. Not only that, there would be the general's family would be following behind him, celebrating the victory their father had won. And then there would be the captives who would be marching unto their death. These captives would have been the best and brightest of the, the people that were there, maybe soldiers, maybe kings, maybe queens, members of the royal family, whatever it was. They would be in this parade, and they would be walking back to Rome in this triumphal procession. But friends, they were walking unto their death. When they got to Rome, they would most likely be executed, maybe on the floor of the Colosseum or maybe in some other way, but they were walking to their death. Now, as this parade was moving along, there would be priests who would walk with containers of incense on both sides, spreading an aroma to the people. Now, if you were a Roman and, and you saw this incense and you smelled it, what would it smell like to you if you were a Roman? It would smell like? victory. But if you were one of the captured walking to your death, what would it smell like? It would smell like defeat or death. 
And so we see this picture of a triumph and the aroma that is around the triumph that has two different reactions from two different groups of people. This was the Roman triumph, and I I believe it is what Paul had behind his declaration. And so when we we think about this, we need now to, to try to understand what was it that Paul wants you and I to take from this description of the triumph. In other words, he used an analogy. What are we to learn from it? Well, the one thing that virtually all Christians can agree on in this verse is in these verses is that this is a celebration of Jesus who won a massive victory. Jesus who went from heaven as the son of God came to the earth a a foreign soil and won a massive victory over sin and death and Satan. Amen. And so when we think of what, what, what happens with Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we, we remember this amazing and mighty victory that Jesus had accomplished. Certainly something that was worthy of celebration. Something that even a triumph, the, the highest honor that the Romans could think about, that's, that's not even close to how big of a celebration there should be around what Christ has done. So the one thing we can understand is that our lives are somehow connected to a celebration of a victory that Jesus won over sin, death, and Satan. But what else should we see in this? Really, that comes down to where do we find ourselves in this procession? Where do we find ourselves in this procession? Now, this is something that Christians throughout the centuries have have come to different conclusions on. Some Christians have looked at this and said that we are like the conquering general. We are the one who has won this victory. And so we ride through life, and and, and because of this victory and because of the spoils that have been collected, we should expect a triumphal life that will have health and wealth and happiness. There is an understanding of this parable, this this illustration that might point in the direction of us as a conquering general. Or are we the general's children? Are we the general's children walking behind our father celebrating the victory that he won? This, of course, makes some sense. We'll talk more about this in just a moment, but that's a second perspective A third perspective, though, would be to say that we are the captivated. Notice a slight change in phrase from the captured to the captivated. Those who have been captivated by Christ, who are walking behind him in this train. So which one of these three is it? Well, at one level, we could say it is not that we are a conquering general. Because who is the one who won the victory? This was clear. We all agree on this. It was... Jesus, right? The the conquering king is Jesus, not us. And so it is Jesus who has won the victory. It is Jesus who is the sovereign over all things. That's, That's not us. The things of this world are not ours to claim, not ours to take. Twisted versions of that idea have been used in the Crusades, among other eras of history, to justify Christians doing bad things. That's not what Paul was getting at. When he talked about this, Jesus is the one who is the one who won the victory, not us. And the second thing, though, are are we the children? Well, in one sense, yes, absolutely. 
we're his children. As a matter of fact, Paul began his letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, and he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is our Father. We are his children. If we have trusted in Christ, we have that familial connection with God. And because of that, we have the promise of amazing health in the future. We'll take this body that breaks down and God will give us in eternity, not now, but in eternity, a body that does not break down. And the wealth, God will, though we may have limited access to resources in this life, there will be a day when we walk upon streets of gold in our Father's house. And with happiness, friends, there will be a day where there will be no more crying and no more tears. That is where we are headed, and that is because of our connection to God. He is our Father. We are His children. So there is a sense to where what Paul is is saying is a, a reminder that we are His children following behind the conquering King of Kings, Jesus. But I think there's also a sense where we are the captivated. We are the ones who have had our hearts drawn to Christ, who have seen our affections change towards him, who have placed our faith in him and have staked our entire eternity upon him and his work. This is really what it means to be a Christian. It is to have a heart that has been captivated by Christ, a heart that has been captured by Christ. We are his. We are following him according to his agenda, his plans, and his time. This is what we see when we think about being captivated. And this idea has further evidence in other places in Scripture. Places like Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says there to the Ephesians, he says, therefore it says, when Jesus ascended on high, when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he led a host of who? Of captives. Of captives. He led a host of people who had had been captivated by who he was, who had placed their faith and trust in him, who were following him in this life. And we are following him to heaven. But before we get there, what does Jesus do? He gives. He's not the king that just takes, but he gives to us of his riches. Now, in this life, does he give us you know, huge bank accounts and impervious health in unwavering circumstances? No. What does he give us? He gives to us apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. He gives us gifts, serving gifts. And then he places us inside of churches to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Friends, those of us who have been captivated by Christ are following him in this parade. And ultimately, the destination is heaven. But before we get there, Jesus has given to us a serving gift, and he has placed us in the world, in the context of others, in the context of a local church, where he has invited us to serve him, to make an impact for him now. Now, as we do that, as we do that, We find ourselves, at times, walking to our death. It's interesting what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24 and following. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
why would you take up a cross? You take up a cross to, to go to your death. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is saying to his followers there and what Paul, I believe, is talking about in this triumphal procession is those of us who have been captivated by Christ are called to lay down our pursuit of wealth, health, and happiness and instead to follow him. This is not to say that he won't give us some of those things as we live this life. It's not that we pursue poverty. No, we're pursuing Christ. We're pursuing Christ. And allowing that pursuit of him to dictate whatever follows, whatever happens. And that at times can be persecution. That at times can be pain. That at times can be difficulty. Now, as we do that, we find ourselves being responded to by the world around us in different ways. See, some look at us and they say, you are following a crucified king. That is silly. You're, you're following a dead man unto your death. That's what the, 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 the unsaved world around us would say to the Christian who is persecuted in different places in the world. They would say, why are you putting yourself in that? Just change your religion. Just get quiet about your faith. Why would you be vocal about your faith in such a way? You're following a, a crucified king unto your own crucifixion. Why would you do such a thing? But friends, what is the response of the believing community? How would you and I respond to such a thing? We would say, we follow a crucified, yet resurrected king, yet resurrected king, so that even if we experience difficulty and opposition in this life, we have the hope of God making good on all of his promises in eternity. It is always worth it for us to follow Christ now because we serve a resurrected king who makes all, thing right, all things right in the end for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's life to life, not death to death for us all. And so understanding this, understanding this reality, we think about what Paul says here. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for such things. Friends, the purpose of our lives, as we walk towards heaven, but we spend a number of days here on the earth, is to spread a knowledge of Christ everywhere. So, what are some triumphal applications? Well, the first thing is just an invitation to join the parade. Join the parade. There is a, a celebration of the victory of Jesus that is going on right now. 
And if you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are watching this parade from the sidewalk, but you are invited to join in. And know that at the end of this parade will be resurrection, even though death may happen before we get there. Friends, we have hope. The one who conquered sin, death, and Satan invites us to walk with him and share in that victory. Even if it means difficulty in this life, would you join the parade in faith and honor him in that way? Second thing, I want you to be aware of the aroma of your anguish. You know, as we walk through this life, how we experience and live through difficulty will be known by those around us. They, they, will, they will sense coming out of the pores of our pain is an aroma of what we really believe and what really matters. It's interesting what Kent Hughes says about this. He says, therefore, Paul's driving point is that his suffering, pictured here as being led to death in the Roman procession, is the medium through which God is revealing himself. You know, Moses went out in the wilderness and he saw a bush that was on fire. Now, Moses, Moses had seen bushes on fire before, but he'd never seen a bush on fire like that. This was a bush that was burning but not being consumed. And he knew that God was present in the situation. Friends, in a, in a very similar way, when we think about the difficulties that we go through, people have gone through cancer before, but when a believer in Jesus walks through the pain of the valley of cancer, trusting Christ in the midst of it, others will look on and say, I know people that have gone through cancer. I've not known someone to go through it like that. What is going on? What is giving you this strength? When you think about going through the depths of depression or difficulty, that we might be able to say, we walked with God through that valley so that the world might look on and say, I've seen people depressed. I've not seen people go through this like that or through addiction or through any kind of relational pain and strife. Friends, the difficulty of the anguish that we experience gives off an aroma of what we really believe. As you walk with God, in this life, trusting him in all circumstances, not just the sunny days, but the rainy ones as well. The knowledge of Christ spreads to the ends of the earth. And the third thing I just want us to be aware of is this. The purpose of your life is to make Christ known. The purpose of your life is not your health, it's not your wealth, and it's not your happiness. Now, that doesn't mean that we pursue just pain or we pursue poverty or we pursue, you know, lack of health. No, no, no. We, those, are, those are secondary things. But the purpose of our lives, friends, is to follow Christ and to make him known. And, and wherever you spend your days, wherever you spend your time, you realize that that is a, a venue, an environment, an opportunity for the aroma of Christ to be known. If you're living in a dorm room right now, the aroma of Christ is spreading down that hallway. If you're working in an office, the aroma of Christ can spread through that office. Even when you're going through difficulty, and maybe even especially when you're going through difficulty. Friends, the purpose of your life is to make Christ. 
This is why Paul says at the end of this section, he says, and who is sufficient for such things? What's the answer to that? Certainly none of us. How could we possibly be sufficient to spread the aroma of Christ everywhere? And yet, and yet, God in his grace and his mercy chooses to do just that. And we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. See, friends, we need round, because we have these round-the-clock challenges, we need a round-the-clock perspective among all of Christ's followers. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much for just this opportunity to, to open your word and to study it today. I pray that, dear Lord, as we, as we gather here as your people, that you would um, just give us your perspective because we do face challenges and difficulties and struggles. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would have this perspective that through all of those challenges, that you are spreading the knowledge of Christ in the world. Dear Lord, may, may we be faithful to that task, not a task we're sufficient for, but a task that by your grace might be made possible, that the world around us might know that you are the God who has won the victory. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.